My name is uh, Lieutenant Tiffany Walker, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Tuesday, May 3, 2011. My name again is Lieutenant Tiffany Walker with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Public Affairs, and Emerging Media. I will be moderating our call today. Today we are honored to have as our guest Major General Richard P. Mills. General Richard P. Mills, who served as Commander, Regional Command Southwest, and 1st Marine Expeditionary Force forward in Afghanistan from April 2010 to April 2011. Today he will be available to talk about his experiences in Afghanistan's Helmand and Nimruz provinces, the evolving security situation there, and challenges that currently remain. A note to our bloggers on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question once I call your name. Respect the General's time and keep your questions succinct and on the topic of Major General Mills' experience as Commander, Regional Command Southwest. When you're not asking a question, we ask that you kindly keep your phone on mute as a courtesy to the rest of the callers and yourself as this roundtable will be recorded today and made available on dodlive.mil in its full form. Now we will take an opening statement for Major General Mills, followed by your questions. Sir? Well, good morning, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak with everybody. Again, as uh, Tiffany said, I was the uh, Commanding General for the uh, RC Southwest, Regional Command Southwest, uh, first NATO uh, command there to be, uh, to, be can to be commanded by a Marine. Uh, force on deck we had was about 30,000 total troops. That uh, was about 20,000 Marines and 10,000 other coalition forces that, uh, that fell under, uh, under our command, uh, mainly made up of, uh, of British forces, but also including a, a, a battalion from Georgia and the forces from Estonia, from uh, Denmark, uh, from uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and uh, also from uh, Tonga, who provided us with some security uh, uh, capability. Uh, the year that we were there, I think that we saw a, a remarkable change in the, uh, in the situation on the ground. I inherited a, a situation that was uh, improving every day. The, uh, the MEB size unit, about 10,000 Marines that had been there before I was there, had done a good job of laying the groundwork, as had the uh, British forces who had been fighting there for several years. Uh, during the year we were there, I saw a remarkable uh, increase in the capability and confidence of the Afghan uh, security forces, both the police and the Army. And when we left, uh, the uh, Afghan Army forces that were in, uh, in the honor area were uh, about three brigades, all of whom were capable of semi-independent operations and, and, and doing those operations uh, out in the field. Uh, we saw the, uh, some of the, several of our districts were in a, uh, such a good security uh, Posture that they were they were prepared they were at least the conditions were set for uh, for transition to uh, to Afghan uh, security control, and I think the Afghan security forces that were there were ready to take on those uh, those responsibilities. Uh, highlights of our of our time over there I think were the uh, were the culmination of the Battle of uh, Marja, uh, the Battle of uh, Sangin, and several other fights that took place along the uh, along the Helmand River to uh, push the insurgent away from the final areas he occupied. Get him out of the desert, separate him from the population, and uh, and reduce his impact that he would have. Just finish up by saying that I think some of the uh, some of the metrics we saw, some of the indicators, I think that these uh, these gains will be uh, long lasting. Was the commitment by the uh, the, the Helmand uh, population to uh, to the government of of Afghanistan, uh, as exemplified, I think, by their support of the education initiatives. Uh, 125,000 students that went to school are going to school there right now. About 20,000 of those uh, students are, are females. I think that it indicated a, a real uh, investment by the uh, by the population uh, in the future of the uh, of the province, uh, as those students were threatened, as were their parents, 
about being sent to school and about supporting the education initiatives. Uh, we also saw several uh, very positive elections take place during our time on the ground there to include the uh, congressional elections, if you will, back in September. But I think more importantly, the local level, uh, five district community councils that were elected by the people to represent various communities uh, throughout the province, all of which I think showed a real growth in the, again, in the, uh, in the governance uh, line of operation. Uh, we also finish up just by saying that uh, as far as development went, we also saw some significant gains there, improvement of roads, improvement of the, uh, of the uh, phone system, and uh, several economic uh, areas that I think were had significant. Probably most importantly was the reduction in poppy growth uh, for several reasons. First of all, of course, uh, to eliminate that as a, as, a, uh, as a poison to the rest of the world, but from my perspective, more importantly, to, to uh, remove it as a, uh, a resource that the enemy was using to fund the insurgency within, uh, within Helmand Province. Uh, with, with that, I would be happy, uh, more than happy to take any, any questions. Okay. Thank you, General. I appreciate it. Uh, I have six callers on the line, starting with Anon, Andrew, Chuck, Gail, John, and Sandra. Just a quick check to see if there are any other bloggers that join the call. Okay. Then we'll go ahead and start with Anon. Um, thank you, General. Can you discuss the progress of 215th ANIC Corps-level troops, specifically Major General Mulak's um, command and control, Lieutenant Colonel Mumtaz's 215th CLB or Corps Logistics Battalion, the 215th HSSB or Special Headquarters Service Support Brigade Unit, the 215th Commando Battalion? Don't believe um, 215th ANA Corps Combat Service Battalion or Training Battalions have yet formed. Um, how long might it take uh, for all these various core troops to become independent? Thank you. Sure, that, that's an excellent question, and it's a, uh, an area which we saw significant progress uh, during the year that, uh, that we were there. 215th Corps stood up in, uh, in March of uh, 2010, uh, came together. There was some, uh, some veterans involved, and they also raised the Corps through, uh, through recruiting. The, the, as you know, the intent of the Afghans was to focus first on the, uh, the infantry units, if you will, to raise those units, get them up to speed, and then this year, in 2011, to focus on the, uh, on the, support, uh, the support units. Uh, General Look was a, uh, I found him, he was my, my partner. All of the units that uh, were in the 215th Corps were partnered with coalition forces down to the, really down to the squad level. Uh, and we also had embeds, uh, mentors, that were embedded with each of the units to work with them to, uh, to raise their capabilities. You know, Luke was my partner. I dealt with him on a daily basis over there. I found him to be a professional, well-trained, well-schooled, well uh, an officer that was uh, very concerned about the welfare of his troops, but probably uh, most concerned about their, uh, their capabilities on the battlefield, and I saw them, I saw them grow. Uh, he developed, for command and control purposes, he developed a, uh, a well-functioning staff uh, with a deputy commander, with a chief of staff, and with the usual staff functions you'd see in any, in any military uh, unit of that size. Uh, and uh, we, we, I saw him gain confidence in his staff and use his staff much as, uh, as I used mine. And that was a big step forward. Of course, most of the senior officers in, in the Afghanistan are, are basically Soviet-trained, and therefore, are, you know, they lean on to the uh, centralized control. And we worked with him hard to make sure that he was diffusing that, uh, that control down to the lower level so that his junior officers had flexibility on the battlefield. He had three excellent brigade commanders, all of whom I saw in action. And uh, the brigades were, uh, were coming online uh, very, very, I was very comfortable with them. Uh, the uh, strength of the brigade, of the, of the division, of the uh, corps by the time I left was about 12,000. 
and he had overcome the uh, the UA problems, the unauthorized absence problems that plague uh, the Afghan army, I think, uh, through just basic good leadership, ensuring pay was being uh, delivered on time and was uh, given to the men so they could distribute to their families, ensuring leave and liberty was uh, was available to the men, and rotating the units in and out of the fight so they didn't tire uh, and wear units down too, too, too much. Uh, by the time we left, they were conducting independent, semi-independent operations, supported uh, by us with uh, with some logistics, uh, things like, uh, of course, air support they don't have at this point. We would give them some communications capability. Uh, initially, we provided them with fire support, but they have, they've brought artillery uh, capability online, and they use it. And uh, we found them very, very capable of getting to the field, uh, planning an operation, conducting that operation up to uh, 96 hours and beyond, and then withdrawing the forces uh, in a very timely manner in a very way, and, and again, well, uh, well led up in front. I visited all of the units on the ground during their during their various operations. Was impressed by their ability to uh, to, to, to share information laterally and to uh, to move uh, to move their forces around the battlefield with, with good battlefield uh, geometry, if you will. So overall, a very very I think a, a unit that's coming online and doing well. I spoke about the UA problem, the unauthorized absence problem. They dropped that from the, uh, the high 20s uh, percentage to, uh, to about 9%, and they continue to work on that. Uh, they have taken the numerous casualties. They fight hard. They've taken a lot of casualties, and yet they remain focused on mission and, uh, and, and, and continue to, uh, to recruit to their, uh, to their end strength, I think, well. As we were leaving, they were beginning to bring some of those logistics units that you, that you talked about online. Their commandos are online and do a good job. They like to fight, and they're, they're well-trained, again, well-led at, the, uh, at the, uh, the junior levels. They are just starting to develop their logistics capabilities. Uh, they are men mentored and partnered with our, with our guys over there and with some uh, contractors, and I think they're going to uh, spend this year developing that, uh, that, uh, that uh, ability and capability better. But thanks for the question. All right, thank you, General. Uh, next, we have Mr. Andrew Lubin. General, good morning. Uh, Andrew Lubin from Lozenet Magazine. Appreciate you taking the time, sir. Hoorah, how you doing? Good, thanks. Hoorah. General, uh, this time last summer, I was in, I want to talk about Marja. This yeah. time last summer, I was in Marja, Camp Hansen, and Patrol Base in the colony. Uh, fertilizer being stolen, the water pumps are disappearing, things were... I guess in the state of flux would be would be accurate. What happened from that time period to when you left? How did things get turned around so well? Well, I think what uh, what happened was we t we took a look at uh, at Marja because we knew that with that had a particular import for two reasons. There was great psychological value to the insurgent over the over Marja. It had been his capital, if you will, of Helmand Province before uh, we decided to take it away from him. Uh, so there was great psychological value in the middle of the Pashtun community, obviously. But I think there was also huge uh, importance to him as a, uh, as a resource uh, for his, to, to fund his insurgency. As you know, Marja, center of a large drug area, uh, and he used, was using that to, to fuel the insurgency. So, I mean, Marja to him was absolutely critical ground, and he was fighting hard to, uh, to maintain it. But when we took a look at it, uh, we really felt that the, uh, the Battle of Marja was not going to be won in the streets of Marja that it was really a commuter's fight on his behalf. He placed his IEDs in place. He put his, his minefields in place. What he was doing, I think, was commuting to the war from other places. So we took the fight. We, we, we freed up some forces, uh, thinned out some places, closed down a couple of bases, and freed up some maneuver force 
and went after him in the uh, in the places we felt that he was using as assembly areas, places like Sistani, Treknawa, Crazy Sadie, places like that. I think by taking the fight out there, we regained the momentum within Marja, pushed him away from uh, you know downtown Marja, if you will, and made him fight in, on ground he didn't want to fight on, ground that was not prepared really to defend, and uh, uh, we took the momentum of uh, of his movement away from him. He became he rolled back to the defensive and was constantly backpedaling as opposed to being on the offensive against us uh, in taking shots at us. So I think that's what changed the battle, if you will. Uh, and I think if you look now, if you went back to, to Marja now, you'd be stunned at the uh, at the improvements. The other thing we did was we worked with the local elders uh, to give them some confidence in the Afghan security forces themselves. Uh, we got some ANCOP in there, the National Police, that did a good job. And then we worked with the elders to uh, raise a local police force, something they resisted initially because they, uh, the reputation of the local police was not very uh, not very good. Uh, but if, by working carefully with them uh, and, and, and slowly showing them that the uh, local police uh, could be trusted, uh, we began to get some confidence in the local police and then began to get some recruits for local police. Started out with six local boys from uh, Marja, and now there's about 120-some-odd of them that work uh, right in Marja as, as police. Well, trained by uh, by the coalition, either at Leatherneck or over in uh, Lashkar, and, uh, and, and supported well by the, uh, the national government. The other thing was they brought in a new governor. Haji uh, was replaced, and they brought in a, a well-trained individual, uh, Murtella, who was uh, uh, a former lieutenant colonel in the Army, uh, college-educated, had worked in some ministries up in uh, Kabul, understood you know, how to run a government. And he came in and, uh, and did a lot to get the government uh, organized, finally, uh, after, a, after a long wait there on the ground in, in March. So I think it was a, a series of things which changed the dynamic on the battlefield. And, uh, and, that, and that's why we, uh, I think, uh, got, got, got the success that we did. If you we went to Marja today, you know, there's, there's police on duty at the, uh, the various uh, intersections directing traffic. The bazaars are flourishing. Uh, you can, there's several restaurants in town. Uh, all those things you can walk around. The high school is is open. Uh, all those sorts of things are happening. So I think I think you would be very impressed at the uh, at the changing conditions. Over. Great, thank you. Okay, next we have Chuck Simmons. Good morning, General, and thank you for taking our call. Um, the the area of, uh, of your responsibilities is quite a mix of uh, both. Um, arable land and, and desert and, uh, and um, everything in between. Um, I understand the stationing of troops in the populated areas, but I've also seen stories of some of the marine units that are well out into the desert. Can you talk about the dynamics of the fight uh, well out away from the inhabited uh, territory? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. That's a great question. Uh, and, you know, when we got over there, the, uh, the emphasis, of course, was on population-centric uh, coin, and, and, and rightfully so. The, you have to separate the, uh, the insurgent from the population and deal with the population at the uh, what, what are the root causes of the insurgency. And that was uh, certainly uh, that needs to be stressed. Uh, we also felt when we got there that uh, you couldn't lose sight of the enemy, that he, had a, he obviously had a vote what was happening on the, on the battlefield. And so that's why, as I spoke earlier in Marja, uh, we went after him in his, what I considered his assembly areas, the places where he was uh, uh, being able to rest, refit, retrain, that type of thing. The other
other thing that we saw was a uh, an insurgency that was well developed and had very uh, strong lines of supply, if you will, running down to the uh, Pakistan border. Uh, that goes through a lot of open desert. As, as you know, the population of Helmand Province, about 1.5 million folks, about 1.4 million of them live right along that river in that green zone. Uh, and the rest of the, uh, the area, of course, is, uh, is, is sparsely populated. Uh, but the enemy was out there, and he was using that area, especially to move his drugs uh, south uh, to sell them at the, uh, in Baram Chah, which is right on the border with Pakistan, a very evil place I'll talk about in a minute, and uh, using the desert to mask his, uh, his movement of, uh, of supplies and people up into the, uh, up into the populated areas to support the, uh, his efforts up there. So we, we really felt that we needed to get down there and, um, and uh, interdict those, those supply lines. Uh, we had some uh, units that were very well equipped to do that, LAV, uh, you know, light armored vehicles, uh, a perfect mission for them. And so we put them in kind of a screening uh, role south of the, of the river, and that enabled us then to, I think, to interdict uh, significantly the, uh, the enemy's ability to resupply himself. And we saw, uh, in, in, in conjunction with other efforts, we saw that to play out on the battlefield. And we saw an, an enemy who was uh, more and more uh, resource-constrained. We saw that in him trying to uh, recover uh, IEDs that he already placed on the battlefield, for instance, which caused him casualties. And, you know, and my feeling was he couldn't have been doing that if he had you know, warehouses full of new stuff to, uh, to place. He was, he was getting, coming desperately short of, uh, of equipment. We saw it in intel that was telling us he was having trouble paying his troops and having uh, uh, significant uh, squabbles, if you will, between his, 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 his lower-level commanders, again, over resources. And I, I think that was all a, uh, a function of this, uh, of this interdiction out in some of the more, uh, some more of the remote areas. Uh, as I'm sure you're aware, again, he relies, as I said time and time again, he relies on the sale of drugs. One of the places he does that is down in, uh, in Baram Chah, which sits, sits on the border between Pakistan and, and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, that's a very evil place, very dark place. Uh, no one good lives there. It's, it's all uh, people who like to sell drugs or buy drugs and want to sell uh, weapons in return. Uh, we did uh, two uh, significant raids into Baramshah, again, using our forces to cross open desert and uh, do very conventional attack, if you will. And uh, they had a, a significant impact on the, en on the enemy's ability to, again, to resupply by taking down that, uh, that town, holding it for a short period of time, and then withdrawing but leaving behind a uh, really a decimated, bizarre area where he, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't use. So those, all of those were, were reasons we wanted to get out into the desert, uh, and, and force him away from, again, from the populated areas, hit him where uh, he felt in previous times that he had been uh, safe, and, uh, and uh, disrupt significantly his ability to, uh, to uh, keep flowing equipment and people up into the, uh, into the uh, populated areas. So all of that kind of played out in our, in our, in our thoughts about getting, uh, getting our forces out into the desert after where the enemy uh, likes, likes to be. Over. Thank you. Okay, thanks, General. And next we have uh, Ms. Gail Harris. General Gail Harris with the uh, Foreign Policy Association. Again, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. I have a question about intelligence, and if you can't answer, I certainly understand. About a year or so ago, General Flynn uh, published a paper in an unclassified publication talking about the, the intelligence community was spending so much time focusing on the IED situation, but not enough on what they really needed to ensure the success of the Afghan campaign, specifically a better understanding of the surrounding environment, the population, and the hierarchies in the various towns and villages. I was wondering if you could comment on that. 
Sure, yeah. One of the one of the great changes I saw, and I I read and was very familiar with General Flynn's article, which I uh, which I agree with overall. Um, but I, I think that what what we saw was a. Uh, a growth in the intelligence community to encompass a lot more than what the traditional military intelligence, uh, you know, used to focus on. Uh, we still had military professionals focused on the enemy forces, focused on the enemy leadership, focused on his uh, his supply lines, doing the things that, that we're very comfortable with and we need to do uh, in order to defeat uh, defeat the enemy uh, in the field. And that was that was it was right and proper. I think that was, that was uh, focused that way. But there was a growth beyond that. Uh, encompassing an awful lot of organizations, both military and civilian, uh, that, that allowed you to really open that aperture up uh, quite wide and take a look at the entire situation there, as you talked about, both from the, uh, from the, from the civilian perspective of, uh, of, of the cultural aspects of it, but, uh, but also from uh, things like forensics that gave us great insight into uh, how he was supplying himself and where his shortages were and ways in which we could... Uh, which we could attack those areas. Uh, and, and it brought in everything from me. I had anthropologists on my staff. I had people who were experienced in, uh, in Colombia, looking at the drug, uh, the drug wars down there, uh, a sociologist, uh, a whole list of people, and a lot of forensics experts, all of whom contributed to this, uh, to this synthesization, if you will, of, of intel that gave us not only a military perspective, but probably more important, brought in that civilian perspective that we needed so much, especially when you began to work in the areas of governance and things like that. A lot of, play, a lot of uh, players over there that you needed to know about who had nothing to do with the military problem, but were, were, in the, uh, were very important to us when we worked, started to work the governance-type uh, issues. So I, I think, as General Flynn's article uh, said, what we need to do is to expand the intelligence base, to bring in all of those, all of those pieces that we don't, we never looked at in the past as military uh, folks, and I think that uh, I think that's being done over there right now, and, and it's expanding all the time. The cultural piece was absolutely critical. I think it really helped us, for instance, in understanding the the role of women in Afghan society. You had you know half the population that you didn't have access to. Uh, half the population in, in, Nimru, or in Helmand Province, speaking of ladies here, who left, less than 1% of them could read and write. And yet they had a great insight into what was going on. So that allowed us, understanding that allowed us then to, uh, to, to build and structure our female engagement teams uh, to go out and deal with the, with the female population. And when we did, did successfully, it gave us, again, a great capability to understand what was needed and how we then could work our development piece to actually provide the people what they wanted and needed as opposed to perhaps what we thought they, uh, they wanted and needed. So we got away from building, you know, football fields and bus stations and rather take a look at the education uh, piece that was very critical to the females of, of uh, Helmand Province and look at the health care, which again was very critical to the mothers and wives of, of Helmand Province. We got that because we understood the culture, we're able to design teams that could work in there and, and not insult anyone, uh, and yet get the information. And, that, and that's just one example, I think, though, of this kind of uh, build out well beyond the military uh, role of the of the uh, of the uh, intelligence community. So I, I think that, that General Flynn was was spot on in under, in saying, hey, you have to expand your uh, your aperture, you have to understand the entire situation on the ground, and you need to bring in the experts who, who understand that type of uh, that type of environment over. Thank you. Hmm? Okay, up next we have Mr. John Doyle. Uh, good morning, General. John Doyle with the 4G War Blog. Um, I was wondering if you could 
give us a snapshot of the enemy uh, in Helmand Province, whether it's um, Taliban or Al-Qaeda or foreign fighters or homegrown insurgents. And, and as a quick um, tag-along question to that, what impact, if any, do you think the uh, death of Osama bin Laden will have uh, on the ground in uh, Afghanistan? Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for uh, the question. Um, the, uh, the insurgency in, uh, in Helmand Province, as we looked at it, was kind of a combination of, uh, of local, uh, local fellas fighting and, uh, and a, uh, a core of far, out of area fighters brought in from, uh, from other places, Pakistan um, most notably, uh, who kind of uh, gave them some backbone, some training, and, and some leadership on the, uh, on the ground. Uh, I think that you know if you were going to break it down, you know probably 60 or 70 percent of them were local, were local boys, uh, and and that gave us some ability to uh, to crack into that and understand what why these fellows were joining the insurgency and the work to those uh, work to those issues. Uh, you know, unemployment is a huge issue in, in in Helmand Province. It's basically a farming community. If you don't work in a farm or, or work in a kiosk in the in the bazaar, you're you're unemployed. And the the money I think had had, had great allure. To drawing people to the insurgency, uh, and again, those were probably the guys we can target for reintegration to bring them back into the community by offering them, uh, a, you know, better future than uh, than dying uh, in, in in some tree line as they try to oppose the uh, the coalition and the Afghan army uh, forces. Um, I think the leadership was was essentially uh, uh, driven by uh, coming information coming out of Quetta in Pakistan, where this where the the strategic leadership. Uh, some of that uh, leadership had not been back in uh, Afghanistan in years. Uh, they would provide guidance uh, to the, uh, the colonel levels, if you will, who were moving in and out of the country. We would then carry that down to the uh, to the local uh, organizations to to be carried out. I think there's a, there's a real weakness there, and that the local uh, again, as the as the war turned against them, I think the local uh, uh, the local Taliban uh, uh, became very. Uh, uh, Resentful the fact that the leadership would could could run run to safety basically, and they had to uh, they had to stay and fight. Uh, my uh, my counterpart, uh, military uh, governor, if you will, of Helmand Province, uh, he he left the he left the province dressed as a woman uh, because of the pressure we placed on him, uh, and uh, he, he never came back. And and that that again, I think now we're seeing resentment down at the lower levels of you know why should we risk our lives uh, when our leadership is is, is safe away and, and living fairly well. So that was kind of what we faced, and uh, I think that uh, there was good and bad there. I think the, the good is that the, uh, the 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 other guy couldn't uh, maneuver his forces very well. He couldn't mass forces because many of the local fellows wanted to fight locally, but not particularly go over the hill to some other town or village area to fight. Uh, and uh, eventually, the out of area fighters that came in, mostly Pakistanis, um, again. There was a resentment that outsiders were coming in to fight a local uh, a local uh, insurgency. We heard many rumors of, of, of other area out of area fighters, but we saw very little evidence on the battlefield of them, uh, uh, you know, their their presence. Uh, often, uh, because again, a remote kind of uh, fundamental area, if you will, of Afghanistan, Helmand Province. Often, when when people would tell you they were out of area fighters there, they they often referred to guys coming from villages just a few miles away. Just just weren't known locally, so it was kind of a, uh, a misdemeanor, I think, to think, or, or you know, misnomer to say that they were a lot of out-of-area fighters roaming around. Um, 
again, the leadership uh, coming out of Pakistan, and uh, we we began to see them pushed back more and more earlier this year. That generally they go there and take a take a kind of a winter break uh, because things were going very poorly on the ground. They were being pushed back into the province early, and uh, having to suffer through, as I talked about earlier, a real resource uh, shortage, uh, both in paying their men, in, in supplying their men, and attracting new recruits to to join them. Uh, regarding uh, Bin Laden, um, I think we'll see how that plays out. In all honesty, I, I think psychologically it's going to be a blow to the uh, to the insurgency. I think because uh, for several reasons. First of all, he does have some uh, some mythical standing within the uh, the terrorist organizations as as some sort of a uh, you know a senior uh, guidance, if you will. And I think the, uh, eliminating him, I think, is, is a psychological blow in that aspect. I think perhaps more importantly is. It, it proves the point that uh, the Americans don't uh, don't walk away. That uh, when we set ourselves a mission, we accomplish it. No matter how tough, no matter how long it takes, uh, we get it done. And I think that 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 uh, speaks against the uh, the insurgent propaganda that the, uh, the Americans are going to leave very quickly and, and kind of forget about Afghanistan and, and walk away from you. I think that we need to stress the fact that uh, we're in this fight for the long term. And uh, we're in this fight to be successful, and that we will t- do what it takes to to get that success, and take the time, whatever it takes, to uh, to accomplish our mission. So I think I think that'll be the, the major impact. Um, you know, the Al Qaeda were uh, they they were kind of in the background of our fight, but I think uh, really from the from the Taliban perspective, I think the the uh, taking down of Bin Laden will probably I think frighten the senior leadership more that uh, they are being hunted and hunted uh, hunted well over. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, now we have Sandra Irwin. Hi. uh, Good morning, General. Sandra Irwin with National Defense. Uh, Thanks for doing this roundtable. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about one of the issues that uh, General Amos has brought up several times just recently in speeches and and, uh, appearances. He, he, He mentioned that there's going to be a big challenge for the Marine Corps um, as it comes out of Afghanistan over time with reset, equipment reset, and said that um, there may be some concerns about a funding crunch and whether the DOD is going to have enough funds to meet all the demands from war uh, reset. And I was just wondering from your high-level perspective, um, what do you see as the primary challenges in resetting the Marine Corps equipment going forward? Well, thank, thank you for that uh, for that question. Uh, and again, I, you know, I was down kind of at the tactical level, if you will, the operational level, wasn't quite up in the uh, in the clouds to, uh, to looking looking down. But I'll, you know, mm-hmm. from the uh, from the from the commander's perspective on the ground, I think in um, Afghanistan, let me say first of all that uh, I was well supplied, and I, and my the, the Marines there were well equipped. And when we uh, found a uh, something that we needed, when requirement came up, and we identified it. Uh, everyone back here in headquarters and really throughout the joint community uh, worked hard to get us those, uh, to get us those uh, whatever else we happen to ask for, uh, whether it be counter IED uh, equipment, whether it be uh, new vehicles, all of that was, was provided to us very timely. Uh, and so I was very, I was very pleased, never had, a, never had a resource shortage back there that, uh, that impacted operations uh, on the ground. I think from the reset perspective, I think that we need to take a hard look at the, uh, some of the lessons learned coming out of Afghanistan. There are, there are some capabilities I think that we probably need to, uh, to maintain, things like route clearance, some of our counter IEDs, and certainly our, uh, our civil and military affairs 
capabilities need to be uh, probably made uh, more permanent, and, uh, and that's going to take some, some resources. Uh, certainly, uh, much of the equipment over there is being used and used hard. Uh, you know, we're flying an awful lot of hours with our aircraft. Uh, we're running our our, our ground vehicles uh, pretty hard. It's a tough it's a tough environment that that is very uh, tough on the equipment that you use. And I think that there'll be some uh, there'll be a, there'll be, a, there'll be a great need I think to uh, to take a look at that equipment to, to refurbish it, to perhaps replace it uh, as we come out of Afghanistan and prepare for. Uh, Permissions uh, elsewhere. Uh, I think that's probably uh, you know what, what we need to take a look at. And I think that the, you know, the regarding other equipment, of course, the, uh, the commandant uh, will prioritize what it is we're looking at and uh, to, to decide what what it is our, our true real needs are and our basic uh, capabilities that we have to uh, have and uh, look to uh, to reset the Marine Corps along those lines. I know we're going to look at uh, some reduction in, in numbers. And, uh, of course, we're looking at a significant reduction in, in budget. Um, again, I'm, a, I'm kind of, I've been around the Marine Corps a while now. Uh, I'm a veteran of, of uh, I've gone through this uh, a couple of times, really, in my career. And each time, what, I, what I've seen is um, uh, all, the, all the military tighten their belt, especially the Marine Corps. We, we work, I think, very, very well on the, uh, on the margins. We, uh, we're used to being uh, thrifty and uh, being able to make the most of what we get. And I think that I've seen, again, as I say, in, in years past, back in the 70s, I'll, I'll point out in, in particular, um, we, we continued to function very well. We continued to provide a, uh, an expeditionary force ready to move on a moment's notice. Uh, and we just uh, took a hard look at what the equipment that we had and made best use of it. So I, for one, am not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, overly concerned that, that uh, I think that we, we need to look at what, we, what we're going to get, take a look at the money that's available to us, reset the cores as, as best we can. But I can guarantee you that the Marine Corps will be ready to respond. I guarantee you. It is in the, it's in the Marine DNA. And uh, regardless of what the budget does to us, regardless of the equipment that we, uh, we may not uh, be able to get uh, quite on time, uh, we'll be ready to go. And, and, I, and like I say, I, I say that from experience. Uh, I can remember times we didn't, it was tough to get fuel for, the, for vehicles to go to the field to train. So you walked. Uh, when it was tough to get um, ammunition to shoot for training. But you, you may do. Uh, and when the court, when the country called, uh, we were ready to go, and uh, we will be again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for that. I I almost wanted to join the Marines. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, Tiffany, we have a spot. I'll find a spot for you. I know you had you had me at, you had me at uh, guns. Um, okay, so uh, we've hit everybody. We're going to have time to go through a couple more around the loop. Anand, do you have any other questions? Sure. Um, General, um, was not surprised by your praise of Shirin Shah and two and three two fifteen since they are a bit of a legend. Was surprised by your praise of first and second brigade because of how green they are. Could you elaborate on that? Um, how long will it take first and second brigade to reach third brigade's operational ability? Um, and uh, and for a related question, um, at, I guess two fifteenth now has or will soon have twelve combat battalions. How many do you think they need at end state to replace all of ISAF in, in Helmand and Nimrud's province? Yeah, well, I think the other two brigades are coming online uh, very well. General Wasi's brigade up north is, is doing great things up in Sangin uh, and, and up along the northern, uh, the northern perimeter, if you will, of the, uh, of the uh, area of operations to include uh, some operations over in, over in Nimrud's. Uh, he's uh, shown a remarkable ability to command and control, of course, a wide scope of, uh, of ground. Uh, he's, uh, he's out in Delrom, 
uh, and yet many of its fighting forces are up in the Sangin area and, and pushing north there with, uh, with, our, with our forces as well and, and doing well. He actually has been very, very valuable to us. He's a, uh, he's a fighter. He's a tough, tough, tough little guy uh, that likes to get, stick his nose in and, 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 and see action, and his troops reflect that, uh, that kind of command climate. He's also from the Sangin area and has, has great connections there. and was very, very valuable to us as we, uh, we negotiated the Sangin uh, security agreement that you may, may be familiar with. And uh, I've seen him in action, uh, very well received by the uh, locals, and uh, good, a, good, a good fighter. Regarding timelines, I think the, the, what re the real question is the threat they're going to go up against. Uh, that's, that's the timeline. Uh, are, are any of these units going to be the 1st Marine Division? Uh, you know, I don't think so, in all honesty. But I don't think they need to be. I think that as you watch the threat diminish, and as we, as we take away the enemy's capabilities, and we're doing that, through a combination of, uh, of uh, Afghan army operations and coalition force operations, you begin to see him have a lowered and lowered uh, capability. You don't see uh, the insurgent uh, being able to uh, put uh, platoon-sized elements together. He fights now in, in groups of threes and fours when he comes together, perhaps many as six, but you don't certainly see anything larger than, uh, than a squad. Uh, as we reduce his capability, and we see that in the reduction in indirect fire that he's lost, we see it in his, uh, his inability to really provide uh, a lot of wholesale ammunition to his, to his men. And you see younger and younger enemy commanders on the field because our special forces are decimating the uh, brigade commanders, if you will, and the battalion commanders on the other side of the, uh, the, other side of the, uh, the FIBA. Uh, all of that adds to a diminished enemy threat. And the, so, the, so the, the rise in capability of the, uh, the Afghan army and police does not have to be as dramatic, perhaps, as you might think. And I think that we are rapidly approaching, and really have, a, have, 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 sur, have, have suppressed, where I think at least two of the, battalion, two of the brigades in the Afghan army or in the Afghan corps are, uh, are ready to take on the threat in their area. And, and the third one is, is, uh, is coming, along, uh, coming along well. I think as long as we continue to mentor them, stay with them, keep working with them, uh, I think uh, they'll continue to progress. You know, a specific timeline, I think if you look at General Petraeus's plans, if you look at kind of the, kind of the, uh, the way that the, the glide path that we are on, I think that the, uh, it'll, it fits very nicely with, uh, with our, uh, our reduction in forces here in the next few years, along with a, uh, a rise in their capabilities. So I, think, I think the plan is, is working out as, as uh, visualized. Uh, and so I, I again, I, I, would, I would say to you that uh, you don't want you want to make sure there's not catastrophic failure. You want to make sure as, you, as they as they walk through their various operations that you do so at a pace in which they can build success on success on success. That raises their confidence uh, and makes them more and more confident of their own ability to take over on the battlefield. And you're beginning to see that in places like Nawa, in Garmshire, uh, transition is kind of underway. Uh, de facto transition of we're moving the Marines away, Marja, moving the Marines away from areas we formerly had occupied, turning over uh, positions to the Afghan security forces, and certainly in Lashkar, where the uh, UK forces are centered, uh, that'll be one of the among, one of the first districts to um, to begin transition uh, this July. So, uh, you know, timelines are, are, are timelines. I think what's really important to look at is how does the Afghan army on the ground there stack up. Uh, as against the threat that they face. And, we're, and again, I'll just again summarize by saying the threat is being reduced significantly. Their capabilities are rising on a, a, at a nice pace. And I think that uh, they're, they're making great, uh, great progress in being able to take over security on their own. Over. Well, thank you, sir. Andrew? 
Mr. General Andrew Rubin again, Leatherneck Magazine. Sir, with the Taliban and the bad guys being chased out of Marja, and soon being chased out of Sangin to Jockey Dam, are they going south down by Barham Chow, or is, is this, would it be fair to say that Helen Province and perhaps Nimrod is pretty much secure that? Well, I think Nimrud's province looks looks real good. Uh, you, you know, it's very different, very different fight out there, very different situation. Uh, low, rather low uh, insurgency. There's there's some bandits up around the northern end of Route Nine, as we're up around Delram, but essentially not much of an insurgency, and uh, one that's being handled actually by the um, the Afghan police in Nimrud's province and by a uh, one uh, one battalion of Afghan army, which is pushed down Route Nine through the. Uh, to the, the, the bandit country, if you will, and they're backed up by the Georgians, who are doing an excellent job out there. Uh, so we haven't really uh, put much, uh, uh, I haven't put a lot of the forces weren't out there. A lot of the, uh, the, the uh, U.S. Uh, coalition force was not out in that, in that area. So I think Nimru's province is in, is in, is in good shape. Now, we're mentoring the police out there. Uh, they're, they're rising in their capabilities. Now, they certainly have a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a smaller province population-wise, but if you go down to Zaranj, the capital, you'd be impressed by the development down there. Hard surface roads, uh, indoor malls, the, uh, the governor has a, has a swimming pool in his backyard. Uh, it's quite a normal town, if you will. Uh, it's a great crossing point with the Iranians, and uh, there's good commerce that flows back and forth. And, and other than some development projects, canal refurbishments and some work with their, on their airport, um, uh, you know, that was really kind of a uh, business as usual, if you will, uh, for a uh, developing uh, third world country. Um, I, I think where the enemy is, is going in, uh, I think he's being pushed. The enemy's going where we're, where we're pushing him to. He's not, it's not his choice. Uh, we are, we're, we're dictating where he goes. Uh, he is being pushed to the north, uh, and he is being pushed up beyond Kajaki uh, into, the, into the northern mountains. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of uh, operational detail because I don't want to get into my, uh, you know, I'm not in charge over there, and uh, General General uh, Toulon is doing a great job, and I, I don't want to get into his planning and, and, and things. But I think what basically can be said is that we are pushing the enemy uh, back up into the hills, back into the unpopulated areas, out into the desert, and, uh, and he's scrambling to be able to survive out there. Uh, you know, life is tough up in those mountains, and it's, it's tough out in the desert, and he relies on being able to reach out to the uh, population and steal what he needs. He simply goes in and blackmails and threatens people until he gets food, money, and, and uh, what he needs to live on. So you separate him from the population, he begins to wither. Uh, there are still some pockets of resistance. The Upper Goresh Valley is still a, uh, a nasty place to be. But um, overall, you know, he's going where we push him. And uh, we're going to push him away from the population and up into areas where I think he's going to have a difficult time uh, living on his own over Thank you. Okay, everyone. Thank you all. We've had some great uh, questions and comments today. And as we need to wrap up today's call, I'd like to ask the general if he has any final comments. Uh, just, just to, to uh, thank all of you for the uh, for the coverage that uh, that you provide and for the uh, you know the very fair and firm uh, uh, stuff that, that gets out in the news. I think that uh, one of the one of my great uh, uh, things I was very impressed with was the amount of coverage that uh, was was provided to us over in uh, in Helmand and how fair it was. I think that of all of the media we had come through, and there were significant numbers, both print and uh, and uh, you know visual media, uh, I, I never saw a report that I that I, that I disagreed with. I never, I never saw anything published that I felt was unfair or unjust, and, and I thought it was most of it was very fair in reporting the good things and pointing out some some weak areas. So I, I would compliment all of you on uh, on what you do, how you do it, 
And I think that the uh, the military uh, media cooperation has never been better. And I think that's that's great for everybody concerned because I think the story needs to get out, and that needs to get out in a very firm, a very fair uh, way. So thank you very much for your interest today, and uh, I appreciate very much the uh, the work that you're doing, Tiffany, as well. And I I will find that slot for you in the Marine Corps if you need one. Over. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it, sir, and thank you for your comments. Today's program will be available online at the Bloggers Roundtable link on dodlive.mil.mil, where you'll be able to access a story from today's call, along with source documents such as this audio file, print transcripts, and biographies. If there are any other questions about this program, please contact the Department of Defense New Media Team at 703-325-0103 or via the New Media email address. Thank you again, General Mills, and our blogger participants. This Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable. Please feel free to disconnect at this time.